with at least 2.5 billion pages of pornography available online every day. It's the uncomfortable conversation we must have. Kids are exposed to pornography as young as eight or nine years old, and it has a profound impact on their health. We are in an identity crisis in our culture because culture will tell you who you are. Why? Because it's got something to sell you or it's got something that it wants you to conform to. When we start building healthy identities and we do that in such a way where we have open conversations and we say, that must be so hard. I don't want you to be alone in that. That's, that's getting on their level. It's not standing in front of them. It's really shoulder to shoulder. Like, look, we need a game plan. And then talking to them about who you see them as. Uh, that is crucial. That's identity building. Joe Madison, Executive Director at Demand Disruption, joins us today for a deep dive into the world of pornography and its direct relationships with sex trafficking. From the pornography viewer, addict, buyer, seller, or producer of content, he breaks down the cycle with our families, communities, and children in mind. This is a conversation for parents and concerned community members alike. So without further ado, here's your host, Renya Mancarios. Welcome to the Balance Voice Podcast. We're thrilled to be joined today by Joe Madison, Executive Director of uh, Demand Disruption, formerly Love People, Not Pixels. That's hey, right. Joe, hey. how are you? Great to be here, Renya. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. We don't usually have people in studio, yeah. so I'm so happy you're here. It was in my contract. I, yeah. I required it. it? <laughs> Only professional lighting, studio <laughs> setup. I need all the help I can get. Oh, okay. come on, please. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is you're so much taller than me, so I'm on like 95 pillows, but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, Joe, we're so happy to have you. What you do is um, not pretty. You deal with some of the toughest issues in our society from pornography to abuse to trafficking to really, we were just talking about the depravity of man. But let's first talk about your organization in a nutshell and the fact yeah. that you left corporate America yes, I did. to do what you're doing. Yes. The path I took was really sort of this circuitous route. I, I left my career uh, really based on a text message that really kind of haunted me. And the text message was a link to a video of Elijah Rising's mentor. And y'all know it well, being partners. And I've actually, Demand Disruptions, had the honor of partnering with Elijah Rising and Crime Stoppers on that mentor a couple times. And the thing that haunted me was, I'm a Houston guy. Like, I'm the guy who has spreadsheets here, my budget there as I'm working as executive director, and down here on my phone, I'm watching the Astros crush yeah. the White Sox. Um, so, so... This is happening in my backyard, and I grew up in tough neighborhoods. I thought I was pretty savvy. I had no idea. I had no idea of the extent of human trafficking in my city. And the last line in that video is, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you didn't know. Yeah. And when I saw that, it did stay with me. And so that, be, that kind of planted a seed. So we started volunteering, um, and it just led to an opportunity for me to take a little time. And I told my wife that I think I'm supposed to volunteer full time. And so I did that for about a year, got to see the different cycles, parts of the cycle of human trafficking. And in doing so, um, got to understand them at a, a deeper level from mm -hmm. people who had already been doing it for a while. And when I landed with uh, what's what's now Demand Destruction, yeah. uh, I was working with, uh, with Bo Abdullah, the founder, and our first, our first engagement was an operation on site as men are arrested in handcuffs at the point of arrest for solicitation of prostitution. And while that was a strange experience, uh, it, it made it clear that I think that's where I'm supposed to be serving. So is the focus of demand disruption disrupting the cycle, meaning the appetite for pornography, the appetite for buying sex, the appetite for selling it? 
Yeah, I would put it this way. We focus on two things. We are, we're focusing on changing the buyer's heart and changing um, the awareness of all of the contributing factors to demand. Yeah. What makes somebody want to buy another person? But when we can't change that buyer's heart or we can't do that and we have to be reactive, we are going to be a barrier between the exploited and those that would exploit them. And we do that through a number of our programs. Okay, but what's interesting is like, what I find when you talk to people in the community, they think we're exaggerating when we talk about human trafficking. They're always like, you know, people choose to be sex workers. You've got to be okay with other people's decisions. There, you know, you talk about minors, you know, there are minors that are just not good kids or this is what they want to do. Their families are okay with it. Every, you know, people have the right to engage in any type of sexual activity they want. There is no changing of the heart. This mm. is just people's choices. I mean, you're, but you're in it and you're seeing what's going on. Yeah. How would you, like, what's your answer to people who say that? I've had people question that expression. We haven't changed it for four years. We want to change the buyer's heart. Well, how do you do that? It sounds like flowery language, but the truth of the matter is you, we have to look at it from a perspective of how did they get there? Mm-hmm. I had a call last night. Uh, I'm the guy that sits in the room with the, the men that people hate in society, the buyers. Uh, Mike Steele, he's the mm-hmm. administrator of our STAR program. We are on site with guys at the point of arrest and also once they've been prosecuted and they're going through our STAR class, something that is dedicated to those people understanding first their buying behavior and how it's linked to human trafficking. Because, Rana, you would be shocked at how many of these men do not make the connection. They have no idea. They don't They don't think she's out there. She wants money. Right. And, and I know what I want. It shouldn't yeah. even be illegal. That's the justification that our culture gives men and gives people and gives buyers. And they act on that. And while we we make no bones about it, we tell them from the beginning, accountability and responsibility, we're not going to make excuses for you. This class is to establish that connection, but then also go back and really look at what factors led you to this behavior. Mm. Because we're talking about, when we boil it down, a behavior pattern. You know, a few weeks ago, um, I came by uh, on the National Day of Remembrance. Mm-hmm. And I sit out there and I was looking at the flags and took a picture. It's on my phone. Um, and what occurred to me in that moment, and I didn't really know we were doing the podcast thing yet. So this is kind of a cool full circle moment for me, is that the innocent lives lost and be, continue to be lost. Yeah. Um, that's because of some violent acting out behavior. And that violent acting out behavior is part of this behavior pattern of somebody. And when somebody's in that type of behavior pattern, we have to either intercede and, and, and either get them help right. or find a way to intercede. Right. And that's at the basis of what we do. Right. And, and part of getting the help would be if somebody is in a destructive pattern, you don't leave them alone. You don't, you don't keep them to their own devices. We have to intercede as a community, as a society. And that's where part of the failure is. I know in some of the bond reform. But I, I, I'm saying this because I parallel that to other acting out behaviors. Mm. Buying sex. Mm-hmm. That is an acting out behavior that behind that is this pattern of behavior. And that pattern of behavior has contributing factors. So I know this is a place for some challenging thought and ambitious discussion, so that's what I'm talking about here. We, as soon as we focus so much on the acting out that we don't really figure out what the internal struggle is, what drove that person, whether it's eating a a half gallon of ice cream, which I would not feel guilty about. Yeah, (laughs) I did that this morning. Yeah, see, there you go. It's a breakfast of champions, a lot of calcium. this acting out behavior isn't isn't the thing we should focus the most on. It's what drove that acting out behavior. And as I'm sitting there and I'm looking at these lives that are lost, 
I remember being, uh, I guess the, the, the term would be upset. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about this pattern of behavior that led to that. And, I, and we deal with that every day with guys that we work with. What got them there? And last night we had a class and I asked a guy, what brought you to the motel? Because it's mm. when he was arrested. And I thought he was going to say, you know, I got a sex addiction, whatever. And he said, um, I, it wasn't even about sex because I grew up and in my life, sex relationships, they didn't have a deeper meaning. They were just a thing you did for validation as a man. Mm. These are his words. And this is, you know, when we think of predators or buyers, we think of predators, monsters. Right. They're broken human beings that we've got to understand on a level where, okay, how did you get here? And we went on to say that I felt I just got chewed out at work and embarrassed and I didn't want to go home. And I felt like I needed some release and somebody to talk to, somebody to get to connect with. And I know that sounds ridiculous because, oh, he's going to buy sex. It sounds so innocent the way he says it. But what he was really communicating to us was that he's struggling, he's broken, and part of his internal struggle led to an acting out behavior. And when we understand that on a deeper level, we can really start to affect change. And so what the longest answer ever to a question you probably have on this, <laughs> this podcast is, can we change the buyer's heart? And the answer is yes. And the, the other proof I'd give to that is, I didn't know this, but later he said, yeah, I met a guy at the point of arrest. He didn't know that that guy works for me. Mauricio oh. was at the point of arrest for this guy eight months ago. And he knew him by name and said, I was in a room with everybody in handcuffs that wasn't a cop except for one guy. And he was talking to somebody. And when he talked to me, and here's a guy who was just, he was, he was kind of aloof the whole time. He got quiet, got choked up, and he said, I felt grateful. And that led him to a small bit of discovery. And Mauricio called him a couple days later. That's the whole point of us being on site with yeah. law enforcement is we want to have a conversation later. And when we do that, it begins hopefully a pattern of self-discovery so they never buy again. Because the bottom line is they're not ever going to buy again one way or another. That's our goal. Yeah. Uh, and we want that to be a personal choice through some self-revelation. And it's beautiful when it happens. That is beautiful. And a lot of people think that organizations like ours, maybe yours, were sort of law and order. And it's mm. lock them up, stop the behavior, how, whatever it takes. I like the fact, and that's not what we're about. We do mm. want to stop crime, but we, yeah. we don't lock everybody up. We want speedy and fair trials. We want to look at rehabilitation. We want just punishment. We're in the schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, making sure kids are raised making the right decisions, yeah. that they don't end up in the cradle to prison pipeline. We're doing so much, but at the same time, you do have to deal with the crime and the right. issue. So I'm curious, you have this man who has um, almost a sympathetic story. You know, I just want validation. I was ridiculed at work. But I mean, what is the majority answer? That's not the majority. I mean, right? I mean, I feel like there's sex addiction. I feel like kids as young as eight years old are being shown pornography. I feel yeah. like you can't buy gum right now without it being super sexualized. Yeah, and that's right. We were looking at the numbers for, you know, uh, website views on pornographic websites. And I think combined it was more than like Netflix and all the other. Yeah, the revenue is not even close. I mean, it's it's more than Apple, Coca-Cola. I mean, you name it, it's it's more than those. But uh, I love the way you asked that question. But is that's not the, that's the exception, not the rule, right? The things that you listed after that, uh, pornography, sex addiction, it's actually not mutually exclusive. So you can you can have this internal struggle and you also are somebody who, uh, acts out by viewing pornography or buying mm -hmm. sex or what have you. 
it, it is all collected. And it comes back to something that you mentioned a second ago. You have to have a proactive and a reactive approach. Yes, we for sure. We have to understand. For sure. We can't just throw stats out there. Yeah, and, agreed. And, and honestly, and historically, the anti-trafficking community, we haven't been the best at giving stats context. Some do it better than others. But here's what I mean. You, you mentioned the average age for viewing pornography for the first time is about nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go a little deeper on that stat, we established a timeline. And, and yes, I, I walk us yeah. through this timeline. Okay, so the timeline, the whole purpose of the timeline is to look at how somebody gets to that end result, the reactive. Mm-hmm. We're talking to a guy who's been arrested. And let's walk it backwards and understand how somebody might get to that. And it, it starts very early on. And we'll pick nine years old as the beginning of that timeline. Okay. That nine-year-old who sees pornography, we can't, we can't stop there. We've got to think nine-year-old boy and a nine-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And then we have to go deeper. And we have to pair them up the entire way on the timeline. Here's what I mean. Nine years old, a boy sees pornography for the first time. While that's worrisome and and terrifying for any parent, going deeper, we start to have to really look at it and say, that boy has no point of reference for sex and sexuality to connect it to intimacy and how to have that in a relationship. And it's also layered with shame because I've seen that and inherently I know I shouldn't go tell anybody because I probably wasn't supposed to see that. Mm -hmm. So now they own that vision and that thought. And sadly, they're probably trying to sort out, well, I guess that's what it is to be a boy in a relationship. And the same is true for the girl. So think about the violence you mentioned earlier, the aggression in pornography, the, the, the categories. Um, yeah. They, they're sick as you, as you would imagine. Uh, and when a nine-year-old sees the aggression and the violence and really this awful representation of what it really would be to, to have sex in a, in a healthy relationship, we have to ask ourselves, what damage does that do? And the same with the girl. Well, I guess this is what is expected of me in a relationship. Because at nine that years is old. traumatizing. So we were saying before we started that, you know, I was doing research and, and ended up going intentionally on one of these sites. And mm-hmm. I was literally mortified. Yeah. Mortified by the, the violence, mortified by the categories, mortified by... The fa- mother, son, stepdad, stepdaughter, I mean, brother, sister. I mean, it was it was horrific. And you're saying a nine-year-old girl, I'm going to take the girl's position, yeah. to see this and say, like, I mean, my God, can you imagine when we were nine years old? This is what's expected of me later? Yeah. Or this is what I ha- I mean, it kind of, you like... Let's think of TikTok and every video of every girl dancing with a crop top right now or yeah. short shorts or whatever, or every yeah. song. I mean, the whole world is pushing them down this that's right. horrific narrative. That's right. And that's the, that, that bringing it back to that timeline, that's the reason we start young is because what's next? Well, 12 to 13 years old, that is the average age that kids get a smartphone. So couple that ubiquitous access. Always on access. As a mom, I can see you cringing. I'm dying. Uh, but I'm dying. Let, but let's talk about that because it, it didn't go from nine nine years old and seeing that, and then never thinking or seeing it again, and then no. oh, I have a smartphone. No, there there was some exposure in there also, and so we've got to again look at both sides. So for boys, let's say it's an average age for a smartphone. Can you even imagine what we would have done to ourselves if we had these when we were 13 I, and 14? I would have just I would have destroyed I myself. Yeah, no, I yeah. thank God I didn't. That is also about the average age for first exploitation of some sort. Um, 
inappropriate touching, um, something like that for, for girls, molestation even for girls. Now, not trafficking, but mm-hmm. around 12 to 13 years old. And so the reason I mention that is because then we get to 15 and we see that you know, on average about 90% of boys are, have either watched or are actively watching pornography. And we also see 15, that. 15, 90%. Have you either seen it or are actively watching okay. it? Okay, and if just I want to take a moment to yeah. think, if you're a 15-year-old boy and you're actively watching pornography and you become an 18-year-old boy that wants to date my daughter, mm-hmm. like, I'm sorry. This is the timeline. This is why we put it on a timeline because we have I'll, I'll, we we go all the way up to 22 and then beyond that, and then we develop programs for each step of the timeline. That's awesome. Because it's, it's a unique approach. I can't talk to a, a 12-year-old the same way I'm going to talk to a 24-year-old. Right. But I also understand the 24-year-old was 12 at some point, and maybe somebody didn't talk to him. So it's not just about us directly talking to the youth. It's about equipping parents to raise kids in a hypersexualized culture with a technology gap that is unprecedented. Right. We've all grew up with generation and technology gaps, right? Yeah, but not like what we're <laughs> dealing like with Nothing like that. I mean, I'm 48. And when I was 18, the internet became a thing. It existed. You know, it's like these giant steel drums behind me talking about how ancient I am. But I, I know what it was like to grow up without the internet. Our kids don't. It's like asking a fish, what does water feel like? And they're like, well, what's water? Because this is all I That's know. That's all I know. Right? And, and so when we think about that, we have to come to that realization that we can't raise our kids. My, my parents, I was adopted at 10 and they were incredible and they did a perfect job despite how reckless and dangerous I became. Uh, if I took that blueprint and I applied it to my kids, I would do them a disservice because I didn't grow up with the internet. I didn't grow up with that. Yes. I didn't grow up with the always on opinion that everybody has of me that I get to know if I log on to social media. But I don't want it to be this incredible stressor point. The reason I'm saying all this is because pornography is not, for some of us it's immoral. Argument, right? And honestly, the explicit sex industry wants it to be a moral conversation. Why? Because they can say you're just judging me. You're just you're just putting your values and pressing it on us, and they can dismiss it because nobody wants to be judged. This is a health issue. Yeah, I mean, it's more than a moral issue. It's, it's a it health is issue. a health it's a issue. psychological issue, which all falls under that health category. And so we we've continually talked about that because when I talk to somebody about struggling, if I don't lead with empathy and vulnerability. If I leave with judgment mm. and damning and condemning and all that, we're not getting anywhere. Right. I may feel better when I walk away, but they're going to say, oh, just another person judging me or confirming the the person that I think I am anyway. We have got to get away from that and understand that if somebody's struggling, then let's understand how they got there and let's work through it. And there's methods to do that. And that's one of the ways that we work with parents. We equip them in a workshop. And that's been our approach really from... I guess the last three years or so. But so as I'm hearing you talk about this, I feel like everybody needs to go through this program. Even, mm-hmm. you know, as parents, it's good to understand the psychology. All of our kids are going to be exposed to this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, period, end of discussion, they are. And I like the way you're weaving through the psychology, the social a- aspect, the health aspect, yeah. the long-term outcomes. I mean, you don't need to have a problem to go in through to go through your program. That's right. That's right. You don't have to have that. And you can have a six-year-old who you're sure hasn't seen porn yet and still have healthy conversations yes, that they begin to so invest in. The word that keeps coming to me this year, Rania, it just keeps coming to me. And it's tied to everything we're doing and the word is identity. Mm. We are in an identity crisis in our culture. 
Because culture will tell you who you are. Why? Because it's got something to sell you or it's got something that it wants you to conform to. When we start building healthy identities and we do that in such a way where we have open conversations, that is the greatest, the greatest defense against somebody struggling. I completely agree. How do you do that as a parent in a culture that constantly tells them, no, you're this or you're that, or no, you don't need that, or your parents are old and outdated. The way you do that, it's a multi-pronged approach, but we try to really implement that in our workshop. And one of those is being able to be vulnerable and have empathy. Because there's one of two ways you can handle a kid these days. You can tell a kid, oh, you have it, oh, you have it so easy. Okay, Google, write my term paper. And automatically, you've got it all done. Okay, but seriously, they do have some of it. So they do. <laughs> they do. They do. And that's what they're expecting to hear from you. Because we know some of those are just a given. But when we say it must be so hard to grow up in a culture mm-hmm. where everyone's opinion mm-hmm. is pinging you on your phone or you're tempted with every web search. When we talk to them about this yeah. and we say it from a perspective that we didn't grow up with it, and we say that must be so hard. I don't want you to be alone in that. That's that's getting on their level. It's not standing in front of them. It's really shoulder to shoulder. Like, look, we need a game plan. And then talking to them about who you see them as. Uh, that is crucial. That's identity building. What's not identity building is catching your kid watching pornography mm. or having some indication that they did. And I, as a parent, did this years ago, right? I was like, you know better than that. We raised you better than that. Like we're, you know, we're a Christian family. We that, That's not something we do. And I thought I was conveying it in a way that wasn't, let me throw your computer in the pool and see how that works, right? I was being the good dad. But what I was doing was, in some ways, confirming the thing that my kid was already thinking about themselves. Yeah, I knew I was, I knew I was really bad. I knew God hated me. I, knew, I know that I'm really this broken thing. We need to get to a point where we understand where our kids are and do it in a way where we, are, of course, have the authority and, and we're guiding them, but we do it in a way where we understand the challenges they face every day. It's, it, it's crucial. And in doing that, it has been a game changer. We have parents that come back to us and, and give us their testimony. It's cool. So, okay, I want to take a step back and look at your program just big picture. So yeah. there's, you have this incredible timeline. Mm-hmm. You offer services to kids. You offer services to parents. Yes. You, you try to disrupt and end the cycle by looking at the buyer. Mm-hmm. You look at human trafficking. Yes. Do you do anything for trafficking victims? Uh, we certainly do. Our focus as an organization, this is something when I became director, um, one of the things I said was we are going to never, we're never going to take action on something that we consider demand without considering how that affects somebody being exploited. Okay. And so everything that we do is either in partnership with or with the mind of partnering and bringing somebody in to understand that balance because we've got too many silos in what we do. You know, we hear all these these terms, but silos in human trafficking exist. We're focused on survivors. Right. Yes. We're focused on buyers. Y- y'all, it's the same silo, Yeah. right? There are survivors because there are buyers. And there is a culture that tells buyers in some ways directly, in some ways passively, it's okay to be a buyer. Uh, we go into that in a lot of our workshops. So when we talk about what we do, we always want to make sure that we're partnering with organizations that have a mindset for survivors. We're working on a project right now that um, we're not really talking about yet because it's not a demand disruption project. Mm. It's actually a side project that we're working on, but it is absolutely focused on how do we change this, this given in our culture 
that illicit massage businesses are just a thing. They're just, those women want to be there. What are you going to do about it? No big deal. We can't help it. There are all of these narratives. Um, we don't believe that it can't be stopped. And I'll leave it at that because we're still developing it. But in doing that work, we're asking these survivor service providers. And Houston is a world-class city when it comes to solutions like that. And we, we actually held, um, we wanted people to come see the program about a year ago. Uh, and we sent out 26 invites to 26 orgs. We had 26 yeses and everybody showed up. That's awesome. That's, that's how we beat this thing. We look at it as one thing. When you talk to families or, you know, especially if you mention like religious communities, they'll say it's really bad what happens outside the church walls, the mosque walls, synagogue walls, but it doesn't happen here. Yeah. We have good kids. We're a good culture. We're a good, you, you know, you can go on and on. What is your message to families that think this topic has nothing to do with them? Uh, my first message to them would be, I understand. I understand your thinking. Uh, my second message would be, it's not happening somewhere. It's happening here. And that's wherever you are. Um, the reason I say that is not the scare tactic. It is let's make sure we're prepared. Because um, some of the questions I get from time to time is, what do you do if you find your kid watching pornography? Yeah. The answer to that question is not actually the answer to that question. The answer to that question is the answer to a different question is, what have I prepared myself to understand when I find my kid is watching pornography. When you find your kid watching pornography. Not because inevitable necessarily, but because in the moment, you cannot trust mm -hmm. your reaction as a parent mm -hmm. because it hurts deep. Mm -hmm. Man, you see that and you feel like my kid is, they're staying there. You know, you're going to react even at your best. When you, when you understand it earlier on and you realize that our culture is telling them that's fine. Nor, uh, pornography is not, is not tolerated in our culture. It's celebrated. And so it is almost inevitable that they will see it. This conversational approach, you know, Defend Home, our workshop that we go through, that is something that brings it to a conversation and not the talk. Did you, let me ask you, did you have a talk with your parents about sex? No, but I'm, remember, okay, so my family's Arabic. Yeah, like they're what, like, you will start dating once you get married. That's right. And then, you know, yeah. you don't, even, I might, even I after that. I might be that. a little Arabic because I had to say my idea. Yeah, that's, no, like, <laughs> of course not, no. no. So. That is the answer. And the other answer we get is, yes, we had the talk. My talk was incredibly awkward. God bless my adopted mom. Uh, she did the best she could. That was the most awkward 40-minute drive ever because I, she, I, I can't, I can't. we had like 45 seconds of it on the start of the drive. Yeah. And then <laughs> we're like, get me out of the car. <laughs> get me out of Yeah. And then silence for the next 38 and a half minutes. No. And I was like, oh, And okay. I give her a lot of credit because I tell my husband, like, I, I, I'm like, you talk about it. He's like, no way. It's you, you're the mom. Like That's if it. we had sons, That's I'd it. talk so, about it. That is so, I'm so glad you contributed that because she had the courage to do it. Two boys, like she raised two daughters and they adopted two eating machines. I don't know what she was thinking. <laughs> um, she terrible judgment on her part, but I'm so grateful she did. Um, but that talk was awkward and we never talked about it again because the talk doesn't work. Mm. The talk is a monologue. The talk mm. is a blurt. The talk is a, okay, right, you understand that? Okay, good. Yes, we're And done. then we go back to our husband or wife and say, did you have to talk? Had to talk. Done. Good talk. Check good talk. It. Yeah, <laughs> check it out. Did you have to talk? I did. But what we don't realize is that the conversation is what changes and, and builds identity. Mm. And so it's not about shutting down every porn site that comes into my kid's phone. It's about my kids seeing that and going, that is not in line with my values, my yes. beliefs, my attitudes, or my identity. Mm -hmm. And we think that that is impossible to do. It really isn't. Mm -mm. We I can agree. have these conversations. Um, the other thing I would say that's crucial and we talk about in our workshop is 
Uh, and I'm really not pitching our workshop here. We've just, this well, is I think all. You, I think everybody listening should be taking this workshop. Well, workshop. we'll just do it with Crime Stoppers here. That, and, I mean, please. Uh, it's amazing. We have come to some realizations in talking to parents and, and revise the workshops so that we can we can address these questions for others. And one thing that I've always said is don't pair off. Dad talks to the boys. Mom mm-hmm. talks to the girls. Mm-hmm. The value in, in crossing over is this. My daughter hears a man say, you're worth more than that. Yeah. Yep. And when she has a boyfriend who doesn't treat her that way, it is not going to check out. Mm-hmm. And and then my son's here from my wife's perspective. I can't go to the grocery store without realizing the same guys on the same aisle, four aisles in a row. Um, I can't go into a crowded room and not make sure that I'm not going to be brushed up against by someone. Mm. These are realities. And our, our boys need to hear their moms say it. And our daughters need to hear their dads say it. And when you cross over like that, it personalizes it in a way that pornography can't compete. It becomes a personal thing and it goes back into that identity. So I love I love the multi-pronged approach you have. I love that you're dealing with like the heart, the mind, the body. You're yeah. dealing with psychology. You're, you're looking at what's going on. Do you have hope given the industry and the world is what it is? It can be overwhelming and very intimidating. And hope can be a thing that uh, comes and goes whenever you feel overwhelmed. Preparation, Mm. equipping, support system, identity. These are things that we can control. These are things that we we can seek and find. There are are incredible organizations out there that will provide that sort of support. And with that support comes preparation. With preparation comes confidence and hope. I mean, how many times have you presented in your life? Hmm. You've got, I didn't write, print anything out because no I'm apparently just a winger and you've got everything circled. Y'all, yeah. if I can see this paper, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it's not enough, actually. But it's because that you are preparing and in that preparation, you're having conversations every week on, on this podcast with people from all different walks of life. But the conversation is a flowing one that's easy to understand because you're confident because you're prepared. Why aren't we doing that in our lives, yeah. in, our, in our families? Because I, I will tell my kids there are things when they're growing up, <laughs> there are things we will not bend on. We're the parent. Yeah. Um, there are about, I think the last count is two and a half billion porn, porn pages. Two and a half billion. And there's two of us. We're in a two-parent household, which there's is not two, what everybody wait, gets. There, there's two and a half, say it again. Two uh, pages of pornography, two and a half billion. I'm, that's probably now exponentially more because it's sort of self-replicating. <laughs> But that number, I say that because when I communicate to my kid that your mom and I are outnumbered two billion, two and a half billion to two, so we are going to know your password on your phone. Yeah, we agreed. are going to be your friend on every social media. We will not have Snapchat mm-hmm. because there's really no reason that your mm-hmm. message has to disappear mm-hmm. because your friends on Snapchat are also on Instagram. You know these yes. logical conversations yes. with boundaries. Mm-hmm. But we're also giving them a voice in it and saying, okay, let's talk about our, our wireless phone contract. I didn't do this back in the day because I wasn't in this world. I didn't yeah, have no. this visibility. So I understand most of the people that hear this today and we talk to, they don't have that realization. But now that we do, there are ways to have a house contract about your smartphones. A contract that talks about here are the things that, we're, that are okay. Okay, let's all agree. Parents too. No phones in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, we all say we don't take our phone in the bathroom, but... Sure, we don't. We're, yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't, and every, most people I know don't put their phones down. Period. That's right. We have to have boundaries mm-hmm. with the dinner table. Let's create. A, let's put a basket in the other room. And let's put our phones in the basket, and let's eat dinner together. Not everybody always eats dinner together, but that's one of those physical barriers, healthy barriers that you put up 
And if you get up to, from the table and walk over there to pick up your phone, that's your choice. But you had to choose to leave this mm, for that. whatever that might be because you don't know what that is. It just goes off. We're all conditioned when our phone goes off to look at it. Yeah. I turn mine on silent because I guarantee I'll have 100 messages mm -hmm. after this call. And so mm -hmm. will you. Dedicated time. Dedicated time shows importance. Importance builds identity. Identity is what young people, adults rely on whenever they're tested, when they're tempted. And when they fail, we have forgiveness and we work through how that happened. And then we reshore up that identity and we do the work necessary to make sure it doesn't happen again. Joe, you're so awesome. Demand disruption services, just the Houston area, all of Texas. Yeah, so the our, US. Our, our plan was just to keep it very local. Uh, that plan has been found out. And so we are working with other cities, people mm -hmm. that want to bring this type of awareness. Because as great as Houston is, demand is really something that most people don't realize is the most direct way to stop human trafficking. If I stop a buyer, I don't stop one purchase. I stop them multiple times he would have revisited that illicit massage mm -hmm. business. If I talk to a 14-year-old, who thinks that, that sex and sexuality is just another thing, whether it's a boy or a girl, and we were able to start to change that and tie it to their identity, that changes the path of their their pattern. And if I talk to a mom and dad, because that's the other thing. I mean, I was 18 when the internet came along, right? I grew up with pornography. Mm -hmm. I struggled with it for seven or eight years. And most of that time, I wouldn't have said I was struggling. I never would have realized it mm -hmm. until I started seeing it was changing my relationships with my wife. It was changing my thought process. And as I came to that realization, I then would have different conversations with my kids about it. And what that does is changes legacy, Rania. We have to be legacy changers because as we grow up in a culture that tells us everything is okay, we have to check some of that. And when we do that, we have to be transparent and vulnerable with our kids and say, you know, I can see why this would be tempting. Uh, I want to talk to you about what pornography is and how it doesn't really line up with, with who you are. Or not just pornography, maybe other ways. Um, wearing clothing out of pressure, certain mm. pressures. Um, having relationships that are unhealthy because of the need for acceptance and what we've, what we've allowed ourselves to equate with acceptance. These are conversations that are really extensions of that identity, but things that start with our youth. And if we engage somebody that hasn't had that benefit, then we have other ways to start with them and really work on that. I want to ask one last question. Yeah. Do you have women who are upset that you're disrupting their business model? Uh, we don't because we don't dr directly work with them as much, but I, I would, I love that question and credit to you, Gold Star, because I've never been asked that. Um, Gold Star. Gold Star. Uh, <laughs> it, it is an important question because we have to really understand when we hear terms like sex work, when we mm -hmm. hear, we have to, we have to have empathy to understand that that's that person's life and reality and we don't get to judge that. But we do want to understand it more in such a way that we're contributing to more of a, a larger solution. So when we talk about uh, making choices, this is really what is the core of our identity is. Make an informed choice. Understand the truth about pornography. Understand the truth about sex trafficking, prostitution. When you understand those things, you're an informed person. Mm -hmm. and an informed person makes informed decisions. The truth of the matter is there are warning labels on cigarettes, alcohol, there are warning labels on energy drinks. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when you consume that, it's going to change you at a, a very physical and chemical level. And so you're required to have that. Study after study is showing that pornography is no different. So as an example, you are an ill-informed consumer who is agreeing to something 
that they don't truly understand is going to have a change. You will have brain change. You will have thought change. It will affect you in a, in a very fundamental way. And the last thing I'll say about that is um, when we realize that, then we've got to realize the consequences of that are very real. And we are an ill-informed society that is normalizing things that are detrimental to us. And as we do that, that boundary gets pushed out further and further. And we start to see more harm to more people. And so as we work on ourselves, we really are affecting the greater good, as corny as that might sound. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's true, and I, I just don't want to even imagine the boundary continuing to be pushed. <laughs> Let's push it back the other way. Then. Let's push it back we the other way. Joe Madison, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, you are um, one of our favorites here at Crime Stoppers of Houston. We're excited to continue to partner with you and even do more. Every single person should be signing up for your workshop. Oh, I appreciate that. You can do so at demanddisruption.org. You can find us on social media, Demand Disruption on Facebook, Demand Disruption on Instagram. Um, if you are hearing this, I include this in every interview we do, mm-hmm. and some of this is ringing a bell and you're struggling. I want you to understand you are not alone and there are ways to take action and get help that is going to be empathy based. Um, You can reach out to Defender at DemandDisruption.org. The word Defender at DemandDisruption.org. What that will do is come in a discreet way to somebody that can then reach out to you and get you in contact with support services, help. Uh, If you think somebody in your life is struggling, reach out to us and we'll start that process. At any age? Any age. Big deep breath. We love you. You're so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us, guys, on the Balanced Voice Podcast. And we will see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancevoicepodcast.com and on Twitter at balancevoice underscore. Stay up to date on Renya's work by following her at The Renya Report. And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.